This episode is brought to you by Evolve, powered by Entrepreneurial Mindsets, where success begins in market-based dynamics. Well, greetings, all of you slightly weird, intently humble, change-driven, service-oriented, standard-bearers of Zaponian culture. Welcome to the Zappos Podcast. Adam Francis here. Today we hear about another systematic approach to business, to entrepreneurial work, to bringing ideas to life, the value of severely restricting time and resources. It trains up a muscle. It's like a special skill, which is just cutting through the BS to figure out what actually matters. Where we put our attention and where we put our time is the choice that often makes or breaks whether or not you can move an idea forward. Coming up on today's episode, we hear about a program at Zappos that workshops these skills. And we talk with lean startup author Eric Reese about why going lean is a path to gaining superpowers. That's coming up. Stay with us. It's about eight in the morning when I run into Samaj Temple in the elevator. I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm a little anxious. Samaj, or Sam as her friends call her, is on her way to pitch a project idea to a panel of judges for a chance to win $5,000 in seed money. So, yeah, she has a few butterflies. But she also knows what's on the line here. Just making sure that I'm able to deliver my passion in the best way possible and really connect with the panel and, you know, have them understand and see how deep this is. So what is her pitch in 30 seconds or less? I'm pitching a a curriculum. It's called Unanimous Passions. It's a curriculum that will focus on encouraging creativity, entrepreneurship, and it will develop emotional intelligence in grade school children. In case you're counting, that was 11 seconds. But after two breathless days of working with her team on this pitch, every second counts this morning. Still, I have to ask about what she's overcome to reach this moment of readiness. Well, I definitely had to overcome my own thoughts. <laughs> um, I also had to overcome <laughs> my schedule. <laughs> what schedule? And, um, my, you know, my work schedule. I, I do customer service here, so I have to take time off the phones to actually be here to present this today. Welcome to the 48-Hour Founders Program at Zappos, where employees pitch ideas, form teams, develop a product vision, gather research, and ultimately present to a panel of judges with a chance to secure real investment money. You step out of your day-to-day life and you become a startup founder for two and a half days. Jill Murphy is a former startup co-founder and investor who leads these workshops. It is a chance to be an entrepreneur, a founder, to try it out, to see which parts of it you like, see which parts of it you hate. And from the time you walk in to the time you leave, complete something. This particular session was for women only. And by the second day, several teams are clustered in groups in this basement classroom. Vidi Osio, who works in customer loyalty, took a quick break to talk about her project which looks to attract Latinas through social media and some kind of web application. It's basically an online community for Latinas that will be fashion, blog, and eventually brands that we carry at Zappos. It's for the working Latina. 
the table next door, Alvina Andreevsky has an idea that would launch a peer-to-peer clothing marketplace on the website. My idea is uh, bringing the secondary resale re-commerce market to the primary market of retail, which is Zappos, by just putting that into our existing app and website. Alvina works in merchandising, and she can see that peer-to-peer commerce would push the company into unknown territory. And, of course, adding different elements that we may not even have explored before, such as insurance for liability of packages from peer-to-peer, harassment policies. Now customers are going to talk to each other, um, things like that. Yeah, you can't control the customer experience as easily, can you? Um, I don't think so, and that could be a challenge. How much control should we be trying to exert over this peer-to-peer community, and what would be beneficial and what would detract from that experience for the customer too. So I think there's a fine line to walk, but I think we can do it. We're Zappos, customer service oriented, so we already have that reputation of looking out for our customers, so I think it'd be easy to translate that to this market. Confronting these kinds of obstacles in a compressed time frame forces participants to jump right in to project development before they may even realize that's what they're doing. If you never get out of a first draft, you never have anything that's finished. And so we force the first draft process. In the first 20 minutes, you stand up, not ready, and share an idea. It's hard, it's vulnerable. You're taking something that you love and you're putting it out there. And Jill says that two-day compression drives a rapid evolution of the idea as participants pressure test it by doing customer research or checking in with an expert in tech or finance or marketing. And these extreme limits on time force teams to make trade-offs. Time is more valuable in a startup than money. Where we put our attention and where we put our time is the choice that often makes or breaks whether or not you can move an idea forward. We severely limit time because that's the reality of startup life. Time is really limited. So we create the constraint to force you to push it as far as you can, make the trade-offs of what can and can't be done, choose priorities, choose where you're going to invest because it replicates the real experience. And learning how to do that is as important as the choices that you're making. She says sometimes the compression of breakthroughs and challenges can trigger a roller coaster of emotions. Entrepreneurship is about having your soul crushed over and over and over again and still staying with it. And so there's going to be a high where it's like, oh my gosh, this is really fun and exciting. They can conquer the world. And then the time pressure is going to hit of having to present. At some point, you lose all faith. Usually what happens is a team of founders, one of them loses faith, and chances are somebody on their team will still hold the faith. And that will create some resilience. And meanwhile, as teams build resilience, the ideas are evolving too. The nature of an idea is to grow. And as that idea grows, there's more pressure on it. And with the pressure, they get stronger or they die. (laughs) Ultimately, teams are trying to determine what it will take to move the idea forward. And as they encounter obstacles, they're forced to figure out how best to adapt or adjust to the new information. You've either answered a question 
and shown that it can move, or you have shown that it can't move and you've changed the idea in order to accommodate for that new piece of information. So initially I thought it would be like this, but those customers won't show up. So instead it's gonna be like this. So it has more resilience from having worked through the questions. And so by the end of 48 Hour Founders, each of those ideas is resilient enough to share with a broader group of people. By Friday morning, all four teams are still intact. No one has died. And every team makes a pitch of their new product. Did you know that 50% of Hispanic millennials interact with brands online versus 17% of non-Hispanics? The secondhand or re-commerce market will actually take $20 billion away from the retail industry over the next three years. And Samaj has handed the microphone over to one of her co-presenters, so she's a little further away, but everyone in the room can hear her just fine. Unanimous Passions is a curriculum that will be based on Zappos core values, and it will be used to provide accessible after-school enrichment programs to elementary school children um, to help them prepare to be well-rounded, emotionally intelligent adults like we all are. Samaj's clarity and conviction stems from a very personal place. I went to an after-school program that was just the same. And I believe that if I had not been in that program, I was there until 7 p.m. every day after school. And if I had not been there, um, who knows where I would have been? Who knows who I would have been? I probably would not be this entrepreneur, spirited person that I am today and someone who believes that I can achieve whatever I put my mind to. This is actually the second time Samaj has gone through the 48-hour Founders Program. And each time, the process has refined her idea really, really broad at first, and now it's really specific. I know what I want to do, who I want to do it for, and how I'm going to do it. In just a few days, Samaj has grown and learned a great deal about the potential and direction of her project idea. She's been challenged by her own team to make changes, and her personal convictions are on the line here. We went over all your ideas. They're all amazing. They all had, like, great things. So when one of the judges steps to the front of the room briefly to announce who will win the $5,000 in seed money, Samaj's emotions are all over the place. You want to win, so <laughs> it's really, and you want to, I, I feel like as a human, we want to live to our fullest potential. So just having that in the back of your head and just knowing that there's a possibility that maybe you won't get the seed money. And then on the other side, there's the anxiety of maybe you will get the seed money. And now what do I do? What will be my next steps? Where do I go now? Yeah, it's a lot. It was a lot of emotions. I really can't pinpoint <laughs> one emotion, really. Uh, so ultimately, we decided to invest our dollars into Zappos Marketplace. <laughs> so thank you. In the end, Zappos Marketplace made the strongest and most persuasive case to the judges. But everyone, including Samaj, developed more resilience and a better understanding of their ideas and what it will take to realize each of those ideas in the world. But it wasn't easy for Samaj to work through her sense that she'd lost something. You want to win. So <laughs> just being honest, I was really sad about that. Sad, but still resolved to figure out how to realize this idea, which means a lot to her. And even that same day, right after the workshop, 
she was making progress. Uh, later that day, I had a meeting with the principal here, a STEM demonstration school here in Clark County, and it's in a low-income area. Um, and the principal actually agreed to let us start running pilot days starting fall, which was a big, big thing for me. Um, that's all I really needed was a place to go. So now I'm just working on getting funding and um, getting the legal things together for being able to do that. And when Samaj tells me this, it calls to mind something Jill had said a few weeks earlier during the workshop. Part of the founder's journey is learning how to manage and self-regulate the feelings. So the feelings don't become the reality of the business. The feelings become something that feeds into this, and we put it on the table, and we're honest about it, but it's not reality. Reality is, I'm asking these questions, or I can go in this direction, or I can problem-solve this way, or I can ask for help over here, or, yeah, maybe it's not a great idea, or maybe it's not a fundable idea right now. I'm passionate about it, but I can't recruit enough people to do it right now. So I'm going to do it a different way. Today's episode is about the power of limits and the clarity that comes from working within limits when you're developing a project or an idea or doing any kind of creative work. And one of the thought leaders in this area of startup culture is Eric Reese. Eric has worked with companies, large and small, private and public sector. He's written books on the subject, most notably The Lean Startup and The Startup Way. And his organization, Lean Startup, hosted a conference at Zappos late last year. When I spoke recently with Eric by phone from his office in San Francisco, he said the value of short two-day workshops like Startup Weekend or the 48-Hour Founders Program at Zappos is that they benefit everyone, whether they're working in a startup or not. Most people who do a Startup Weekend, the vast majority of people, don't become a startup founder. Most of them go back to their regular job on Monday. And, and it does tremendous good for those people, too. Why? It's not a failure. It's about learning an entrepreneurial mindset. You go back to your day job on Monday, and then someone says, hey, you know what we should do? Uh, we got to come up with a new Zappos product. i got an idea. Let's, uh, we got to start selling. You know, we have, a, we have a, a page on Zappos where you can only buy uh, you know, fluorescent pink products. It would be the fluorescent pink sub store, and that was a great idea. Or whatever crazy thing someone has. That, maybe that's not even crazy enough for Zappos. <laughs> probably not. But you probably already have that. So yeah, I'm almost like, oh, trying to, trying to, I was about to be like, yeah, you're going to sell you know, shoes for dogs. But you probably have that too already. So whatever. Like something that you, that you don't currently do. And you say, great. That's a great idea. Let's go find out if that's a good Let's go. Let's do it. You're convinced. And the person says, excellent. The first step is we're going to schedule the meeting to talk to the people about the whatever. And you're like, okay, who's going to be in this meeting? And it's like, well, we're going to have 15 people in the meeting. So we've got to schedule it. It's probably six weeks to get everyone in the room. We'll schedule the meeting. And in the meeting, we'll discuss the team who will make the plan to do the – and you can just you know in a lot of companies, it can take you six months to just like get a meeting to discuss the schedule, not even like to do the work. And if you've just had the experience that a lot can get done in two days, you can't take it anymore. You will be outraged. You're like, why does it have to take six weeks to – why do we even have to have this meeting? Let's just take the next two days off. And we'll go just like figure this out. So, so the limits um, in- increase your your intimacy with what's possible in a very short period of time with limited resources. That's right, and it trains up a muscle. It's like a special skill, which is just cutting through the BS to figure out what actually matters. You know, and it's like, why is there that famous saying about living every day like it's your last? What's special about your last day? 
it's just it's a prioritization thing. You're just like, wait a minute, if I only have one day, why am I working on this stupid thing? This is like the corporate version of that. Like you, you confront your own mortality, you realize that time is limited and scarce. And it helps you psychologically remember that most of the things that people think you have to do, you don't really have to do. You know, I've watched participants go through this process a couple of times now. And um, I mean, I've, I've seen it over and over again. This is a really uncomfortable experience. I would say that the most challenging part about being an entrepreneur, whether you're in Y Combinator or you're in a corporation or you're in government, uh, I was just having this exact conversation with a bunch of uh, um, people who work for the uh, United States Department of Defense. So, I mean, one of the largest bureaucracies in the world, but they're, they're true entrepreneurs. And the hardest part for everybody is the psychological stuff, the inner game of being an entrepreneur. Why is that? I think that we love certainty and safety. Like psychologically, we, we, you know, we like to know that what we're doing is going to make a difference. We like knowing that everything's going to be fine. And because of that, we get lulled into a false sense of complacency. Right? We all kind of intellectually understand that we live in the age of disruption, so that means that there's no such thing as a safe business. If we're not constantly innovating to stay ahead, you know, we're not going to make it. But like for most people in most organizations, that reality is buffered. You know, that's the board's problem, or that's the CEO's problem, or that's the founder's problem. It's my manager, somebody else's problem. It's not your problem. And most jobs in the 20th century were structured around functional excellence. So you worked in your functional silo, you mostly talked to other people who had the same job as you, and you got promoted based on whether you did your job well. As soon as we become entrepreneurial in our mindset, we have to confront the possibility that the work that we're doing is not meaningful or valuable in any way. We have to confront the possibility that our idea that we're working on might be terrible. We have to just expect that that's true. And here's the crazy part. This is what I think is so interesting about living in the 21st century. Those risks and fears, they're present even for the safe jobs. So making you an entrepreneur doesn't mean you're taking on new risk. It just means actually confronting and becoming aware of the risks that already exist. But everybody else gets to be in denial about it, which is really fun, and you, you lose that. But in exchange for that psychological risk-taking and kind of feeling of roller coaster reality, the superpower you get is the ability to get things done with a level of productivity that your colleagues will find truly astonishing. I mean, I know that you had to go through this in your own career as an entrepreneur. Um, what was the most uncomfortable moment for you or the most difficult thing in confronting this reality of limits? Yeah, it's, it's super hard. Um, startups are fragile. They can blow up at any time. You can make catastrophic errors and not realize it. The hardest part for me was you can't celebrate the good things or mourn the bad things because you don't actually know what's good or bad. So I can tell you dozens of examples of situations where something catastrophically bad happened to my startup, but then it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to us. So like we worked on a partnership for two years, and then at the last minute, the partner betrayed us, almost killed the company. It was horrendous. But it didn't kill the company. And then as a result of their betrayal, other people who saw them do that rallied to our cause and helped us more and got put us in a better position than we ever would have been in with that partner. But at the time that it happened, I couldn't sleep. I thought we were dead. You know, I was having like physical symptoms from the stress of dealing with this, what I thought was a company-ending setback. But it turned out to be the best thing that had ever happened to us. 
Well, maybe when I tell you this story, you know, like two years later, then you could be like, well, actually, the best thing that ever happened to us actually turned out to be a fatal mistake. Because then it turned out that the new, you know, like you could just, you play this roller coaster game where like something seems good, but then it's bad. Then it seems good. So like the classic one for entrepreneurs is you make some progress. So now you raise money at a high valuation. So you're really feeling great. But then it turns out you raise money at too high a valuation. And now when you have a setback later, you can't raise more money. I mean, just Everything good could potentially be something bad. Everything bad could potentially be something good. So you said that um, a modern company is one in which every employee has the opportunity to become an entrepreneur. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm just wondering, can, can you understand why some employees find the prospect of being an entrepreneur a little daunting, maybe a little scary? Damn straight. Uh, you know, th there are lots of people who would really prefer not to be exposed to entrepreneurial type thinking. And, and that's why I said everyone has the opportunity not the requirement, but the opportunity. You know, there's, there's going to be, in any business, there's going to be a core of the business that operates according to relatively predictable patterns. So it's fine to have people who specialize in that kind of work and to reward them and, and honor them. It's very important work. It's not especially entrepreneurial work, but that's not bad. The world is not all entrepreneurial work. There's plenty of work that is relatively routine. And I don't mean, I don't mean routine in a pejorative way. I mean just literally like where you really understand what you're trying to accomplish. So the problem is, every once in a while, a normal person who thought of themselves as preferring routine work will wake up one morning with an idea, and it's an idea that just won't leave you alone. And you're like, wait a minute, we are in the wrong business. Like, think about all the people that, like, randomly one day worked at a record store or at, the, you know, at a recording industry, anything, anywhere in the recording industry that woke up and said, the Internet is going to be a thing. Oh, my God. Like, you never know when the idea will strike you. Oh, you know what we need to do? We need to move our business online. Oh, my God. You know what I just realized? You know, we've got to move our manufacturing to China. Oh, no. You know what I just realized? You know, Zappos has exceptional customer service, and we're screwed. I, I, get, that, I get that phone call sometimes, right? Someone's, someone, someone's superior has moved into my market, and we cannot compete anymore. So if you have that experience, you're going to be an entrepreneur whether you want to or not. If that idea won't leave you alone and it won't stop bothering you at night and you just realize you have to make it happen, you are an involuntary entrepreneur. Welcome to the club. Mm -hmm. So what I, want, what I want for every company is that when that strikes, when the idea strikes, instead of agonizing about it and having political fights about it, people can roll right into action and immediately make it happen. Mm -hmm. Successful companies are, are typically started by entrepreneurial-minded people, um, and then the companies succeed, they get bigger, and um, hanging on to that entrepreneurial energy is, is difficult. Why is that? That's one of the big questions that we have to solve as a society right now, because we need our companies to maintain their adaptability, but our current management theories, which most of which are about 100 years old, the kind of dominant way we structure corporations today, are starting to really reach the limits. So I think it's as simple as we have built organizational structures that reward and promote standardization and do not reward and promote innovation. If you read the management literature, you can understand why it was done this way. It was a perfectly sensible decision to make when Alfred Sloan put this together for General Motors in the 1920s. This was like a genius level idea. So I don't mean it as a criticism at all. But the world is very different today than it was 100 years ago. And we have to be able to update 
those ideas so that the, the next generation of organizations are far more adaptable because the rate of change in the external world is much higher than it was. But is this sort of where some of the tension resides that we've been talking about between um, those who come to a successful company essentially to maintain that success and care mm-hmm. for it and those who had the entrepreneurial spirit to help get that company off the ground? I mean, those are sort of divergent skills potentially, aren't they? That's exactly right. We have to find ways to balance those two perspectives. You know, some people call it the ambidextrous organization. But I think that kind of makes it sound like it's a true, it's like a binary division. But it's not true. It's much more like a portfolio. There's different degrees of entrepreneurial challenge in any given project. And so if the company as, a, as an overall whole can say, you know what, we're going to put 70% of our effort into core products and 20% into core extensions and 10% into wacky new stuff, or any kind of framework like that, you can then start to rationalize, okay, which projects are in which bucket, which part of the portfolio, and then who's a good person to put on those projects. There are certain projects where, like, you want the founder mentoring that team because it's going to require something pretty crazy. So trying to figure out how do we harness multiple skill sets under one roof is important. But the the lesson I want us to learn from history, this has all happened before. None of this is new. There was a time when it was considered difficult to house marketing and product under the same roof. There was a time when people didn't know how to keep finance integrated into the company. There was a time when people didn't know how to integrate IT into the company. In fact, some companies still don't know how to do it. So over time in the history of the corporation, these challenges have come up before where there's like a new skill set, a new personality type, a new body of expertise that needs to be incorporated into the corporate fabric. And we have survived those periods before and come out stronger for it, and that will happen again here too. I think that a big part of the challenge at Zappos is many of Tony's crazy ideas from way back are now conventional wisdom. Like I remember when Tony was writing Delivering Happiness and how people in the world thought that was just a, a wacky idea. And there were people at Zappos in the early days even who were like, what, you know, we sell shoes online. Like, this sounded very woo-woo, and they were definitely like, now it's considered like such an obvious idea, but it was not. There was a time when that was not true. So the company has now got, like, been through multiple waves of his crazy stuff, you know, panning out. The company like, has the benefit of his, you know, his wisdom and has built up an apparatus that can filter and translate. And so you, you have that duality kind of baked into the nature of what you're doing. So I happen to be, you know, really excited about some of his newer ideas around market-based dynamics and the way that circles interact. And what I think is interesting is the company is now big enough that in order for those new things to get rolled out and be successful, it's no longer enough. Like it used to be that Tony could personally evangelize and have kind of his core set of people who would evangelize with him like person to person through the organization. And ideas would diffuse that way, but you're too big for that now. So now it's requiring the company to develop the skill of training and giving people and like skills development as a way to help people act in a more entrepreneurial way, as well as help people understand who are not wired that way and not in that part of the company. Like you have to train both sides because everyone has to learn how to live with each other. And so I think like as you go through those growing pains, you'll come out the other side with something pretty awesome. Eric Reese is the author of The Lean Startup and The Startup Way. And that is it for today's episode. This podcast would not be possible without help from Angel Sugg, Gene Markell, Jamie Naughton, Krista Foley, Dan Habel, Tyler Williams, Philip So, and Tony Shea. 
Special thanks this week to Jill Murphy, Rachel Murch, Chris Peak, Samaj Temple, Alvina Andreevsky, Vidi Osio, Brittany Hart, and Eric Reese. Our theme music was written and produced by Philip So and myself. Additional music for this episode, written by yours truly. And I am Adam Francis. Tune in next week for another edition of the Zappos Podcast. Thank you for listening to The Power of Limits, brought to you by Evolve, helping make entrepreneurs and leadlings more successful. Learn more at evolve.zappos.biz.